0: Welcome to SemioBites, bite-sized podlog episodes related to theological semiotics. Hi there. You're listening to a multi-part episode, so be sure to tune in and subscribe to catch all of this series of episodes to fully experience this topic.
1: And so, if we could get a significant amount of money pointed his way and relieve him of other responsibilities, it would give me some reason to be optimistic about that project and the path forward.
2: Again, uh, scalability and time remaining seem to be the key factors.
1: Absolutely. You know, if if we're going to experience the Pliocene, never mind the self-reinforcing feedback loops, never mind the the obvious amount of methane going into the atmosphere never mind the permafrost melting away if we can somehow get to 2030 and not enter the pliocene then we might have a chance yeah but already the rate of change far exceeds the ability of vertebrates to keep up in fact by ten thousand times and mm-hmm. that's that's using a very conservative rate of environmental change and the same for mammals much it, things are proceeding too quickly for mammals to adapt as well. And as vertebrate mammals, we fall into the category of ought to be concerned about that. And <laughs> maybe it's time to start living differently.
2: Yeah. Well, I want to go back to your book for a minute. Um, again, I confess openly that I haven't finished reading it yet. So I'm kind of zooming out to the title level of the book. But I want to tie... What happened to you from your going and living in the desert kind of, you know, off the grid time to the property that you have? I think it's in Belize, South America.
1: That's that's uh, my partner's property in Central America, Western. Central Belize. America.
2: OK. Uh, and, and how do those connect if they do at all? Right. And then the real question that comes up is. In the book, Only Love Remains, I'd like you to unpack the choice of that title. I love the dancing at the edge edge of extinction, because if we can't find something to dance about in the face of death, then we're not the humans we ought to be. I mean, I kind of get that, but how does anything remain, especially what is love if there's no loving and beloved? You, right. I'm getting kind of philosophical on the, on that
1: yeah. Yeah, idealistic
2: I side, but I'm really curious about that.
1: Sure. The title came from a speaking tour in New Zealand, and my partner and Kevin Hester and I spent a lot of time in Kevin's too small of a vehicle for those th- three <laughs> large people and all the camera equipment to go with it. And so we talked a lot about the nature of the world and our philosophical outlooks and so on. By that time, I had been making videos that I ended each of them with at the edge of extinction, only love remains. And so I've written and thought about that phrase for many, many years. And we begin talking about a film. And so my partner is a professional videographer, she was contemplating making her next documentary film, and that would be the title of it. Only Love Remains, Dancing at the Edge of Extinction. And the three of us, you know, spent a lot of time together in close quarters, as it were, and we encountered a lot of people on this speaking tour, groups of two to 200 along the way. And almost every group commented on the fact that we were not we didn't appear to be bleak disappointed disconsolate that we appeared to be actually enjoying ourselves and our response was almost always the same how could you not none of us was ever promised another day right none of us was ever promised that we would get to be here in physical form ever the odds against any one of us being here exceed the odds against plucking a single atom at random from the universe We know enough about genetics and enough about the size of the universe to make that statement with great confidence. And yet, here we are. Here we are with the eyes to see where we are and the brains to wonder why. And if we can't enjoy ourselves, if we can't dance knowing that we're at the edge of extinction, then we're truly some gloomy folks
2: yeah yeah we're the most unlikely of creatures in the most unlikely of places in the most unlikely of times.
1: right. I mean Carl Sagan's blue dot, right? Mm-hmm. The little tiny blue dot in the vastness of the universe. And here we are, able to enjoy our time while recognizing that the cost of our enjoyment, includes extinction of non-human species. It includes fouling the air and dirtying the water and washing the soil into the sea. Mm -hmm. And none of that is particularly my fault or your fault. Or, you know, we we can't point to a single person and say, well, that's your fault. If we could, then we could fix it, right? We just remove that person from the system, put them in jail, whatever. (laughs) But no, it's the collective wants, the desires of 7.7 billion people that is driving this thing and, and and you can't really blame people in the so-called third world countries who want the same kinds of things that we have here in the so-called first world countries and right. that's true and how are we to deny them
2: Well, exactly i mean what what sort of exceptionalism or privilege can we appeal to that says you know i have a right to sit in a 1800 square foot home and air conditioning and you know be able coronavirus notwithstanding (laughs) be able to pretty much leave and go anywhere and do anything and buy anything that I can afford who are we to say oh that's my privilege and not yours Ugandan or Kenyan or you know pick your pick your least developed country of choice
1: absolutely absolutely and and who's gonna convince us to do that anyway and now that we know about the aerosol masking effect the rate of environmental change is proceeding too rapidly already. You want to speed it up by a couple of orders of magnitude? Uh, I don't think any of us want to do that. So it, the, the book, writing the book for me, opened up a, a lot of these philosophical ideas that I've been pondering since I was in my early 30s. And so I went back and reread and tried to figure out what I'm doing here for this short time on this small blue dot and I hope it encourages other people to do the same to think about what it is you're doing here why are you even here I used to go into classes when I would guest lecture and I would be introduced by the teacher I'd be on some sort of speaking tour and so then I'd thank the instructor of the class and I'd ask the question why are you here and I meant it at a far deeper level than they heard it so I'd ask the question repeatedly, because the first time, you know, I say, why are you here? And they say, because I won't pass the class if I'm not here. I said, no, no, no. Let's think a little deeper than that. Why are you here? Because my parents think I should go to college. No, no, no. Let's think a little deeper than that. And so on. And so I've spent quite a bit of my time. And I, I, was, I was in a very privileged position as a university professor. I was actually paid to think. Mm. To sit there at my desk with the feet up on the desk and thinking, You know, there's not a lot of people in the society who have that sort of privilege that they can just spend their days and get paid for it to think.
2: You know, I can relate to that, but in a kind of different angle, I come almost orthogonally to that. I was raised, and Yoni knows this story very well, he's heard me tell it many times, I was raised in the Dr. Benjamin Spock Childhood Gospel According to Spock on Raising Children. And as an only child in that environment and parents who took it to heart, I ended up being a very arrogant, condescending, self-centered person. The flip side, good side of that is I also ended up being a very independent, self-reliant, open-minded person. And so whatever I've done all my life, I was being paid to think. And I figured out a way or I kind of naturally went in a direction in my life where I was always thinking Philosophically, even before I knew that's what I was doing. Because my parents, every time I would come to them with a question, the more complex they thought I was understanding that question to be, the less likely I was to get an answer from them. Right. <laughs> so they would always play, they'd always do it platonically. They'd always come back with a, well, what do you think? Or, well, if that's what you think, then what about this? You know, they always made me think about it. So even in my 15 years at IBM as a techie, And then as a manager, I was uh, just kind of always philosophizing at some level. So, and I got paid pretty well at IBM, you know, I mean, that's a great place to work or used to be. So I was being paid to think in different contexts than academic.
1: Right. But so, you know what I'm talking about? And I'm afraid that this culture doesn't encourage very many people to think, even when they are in a position that we say they're being encouraged to think
2: mm, yeah. college
1: students for example you know it college life becomes so packed with classes with assignments with things you need to do at home between the classes with the partying life with the social life that the, it's easy to not spend any time thinking during four years of college yeah <laughs>
2: It is indeed. I mean, it sounds like a get,
1: horrible, in, it sounds like a horrible indictment, and maybe it is. But I, it's really difficult to get all that stuff done that your professors think every class is the most important thing you could ever take in your life, and it's and, just, you and, see and have it time is. to think, right? Yeah,
2: and fitting the partying in there doesn't make it any easier, does it? <laughs> it no,
1: and, and how how could we deny deny people? You know, it's it's the time you're getting out of the house that you grew up in and you're interacting with your contemporaries, with your peers. You're learning who you are. And well, I,
2: if, I, I'm sorry. If, if, I, if, go if ahead.
1: That if that doesn't include a lot of socializing, a lot of social interactions, then I think we're missing a big part of the point.
2: Yeah. We'll never learn to dance at the edge of extinction if we don't do that.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Well, I think, Guy, we're kind of coming to the close here, but I want to kind of zip my lips and turn it over to Yoni for anything he might have to add or ask.
0: Um, I think you primarily answered my main question. But the, I guess the other question is, given all this knowledge, given the situation we find ourselves in, what is the practical takeaway for our listeners? What can they do that, actually helps instead of causing a bigger issue.
1: You know, I suspect most of us have relatively little influence over anybody. I mean, I hate to downplay our importance because we all think we're pretty important. But in my life anyway, I've had interactions in any given year with a very few people that continues today. I have a few friends. I have the woman I live with. And I try to not make their day any worse than it would otherwise be. So I try to focus on the very local. I I try to treat people with decency and with respect. I try to treat people like I would want to be treated, in other words. And I think we can all do that. And a lot of us don't. A lot of us don't do that because the society, the culture doesn't really w- reward us for acting in that manner. So this culture rewards us for kicking grandma out of the way to get the last Xbox off the shelf.
2: <laughs> or and, the last roll of toilet paper.
1: <laughs> right. And if, Sorry, if I, I had, had to go there. <laughs> if I had one suggestion for people, it would be to imagine everybody around you is your beloved elderly grandmother, every single one of them. How are you going to treat your elderly beloved grandmother? Treat
2: everybody like that. Yeah, that's. I, I have to say my conclusion, and this reflects both time My my time invested at Extinction Rebellion uh, was kind of like your time in the desert, <laughs> or your time in, <laughs> off the grid, um, because it was it was one of the most futile periods in my life for for a lot of reasons. But I think you hit the nail on the head because my own answer to Yoni and that would have been much the same. The primary focus I have in my life now is to be at hand, available, ready, willing, and able to comfort, aid, edify, encourage, and love unconditionally those who are most dear to me. That begins with my nuclear family. It goes out from there to extended family. It goes out from there to most cherished friends. And it goes out from there to close acquaintances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And beyond that, I don't really engage much. So it doesn't become it become any kind of challenge simply because I'm pretty well drawn in except for very few selected connections like with Yoni and like with you, Guy. And I can count on at least fingers and toes at most of other connections like that, that I nurture and nourish and try to keep alive. So that's kind of the same thing you're you're saying, if I understand you correctly.
1: Yes, and I think the importance of that small group of people cannot be overstated. To to have a few friends and a few family members that you can rely upon, that you can turn to, that's better than having a thousand fans or yeah. acquaintances that you can't become intimate with in your conversations.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we probably, we've gone a little over an hour here. Um, And I would just make one comment about you, Guy, if I may, for the benefit of our listeners. I mentioned at the outset that Guy is both famous and infamous. He's infamous because he is under an incredible, I don't know what you would call it, disparagement, oppression, uh, marginalization, just all kinds of attack from academic peers and other forces and powers that be for what he... Uh, for what they say he is trying to get us to realize and understand as he sees it. I don't see Guy that way. But I see him doing, Guy, I I don't take this the wrong way, but I don't find much original in your scholarly work. What I find is you trying to explain what's already been said by hundreds and hundreds of others before you.
1: Absolutely. I'm not in a position to generate primary research anymore.
2: Yeah. So people right. who people who attack you for what you're sharing or what you're telling or the message you're sending, they're not really attacking you. They're shooting the messenger.
1: Right. Yes, absolutely. I'm I'm just compiling, integrating, synthesizing existing literature and trying to stay current with it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So anyway, that kind of was my closing comment and introduction, if you will. Um, I just want you to know, guy, how much I've appreciated coming to know you as a as a colleague, peer, and a friend, and Justine as well.
1: Well, thank uh, you. It's been thank a pleasure been
2: visiting thank, with you. We'll do it again.
1: Yoni, yes, stay on a
2: minute. We'll wrap this up.
1: Thank okay. you, Guy. Thank you, Terry, and thank you, Yoni, for the conversation today. I appreciate it.
2: What did you think? How did that all kind of wash through you? So,
0: what he said is not revolutionary. What he said is not something that to me, causes a big issue. I, I don't know why people get upset and offended. And oh well, I guess for them. The the thing that caught me by surprise is when I went to the climate conference for Is It a Jewish Problem? The at the end, the action was love people, take care of people. And now at the end, the action is love people, take care of people. I'm getting the same message from everybody. What can we do about our crisis? Just love each other. Does that mean there's nothing to do about it? Or does the, the idea of that's just going to solve it?
2: I, the way where he's coming from and where I'm coming from is this is where we are. This is where we're going. And there is nothing to do about it that can make a salvation difference, empirically speaking. Now, as as a Jew and as a Christian, that, there's a different answer to that, you know. Because we have an eternal life that we're dealing with that's not really at stake in any of this. But as far as this body and this vessel that that eternal life is riding around in, it's a different question. You know, this, is, this life is coming to an end, probably not within my lifetime. But within yours, you're going to see if, if the projections are right, even conservatively, three or four out of every six people you know are going to die. The question isn't if it's that's the right number or not. The question is how close are the ones that are going to die to you? So Uh the answer to what I think you're asking is, it is, on the one hand, what we can best do in the face of that inevitability, like knowing you're dying of cancer and you've got six months to live. Well, you're dying of extinction crisis and you've got about six years before the shit hits the fan. (laughs) 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 See what I mean? Um, On the other hand, does that mean there's nothing we can do about it? No, like, like Guy said, I think there are things we could try to conceive of doing that might make a difference in the degree of suffering and pain that's coming, how high the mortality rate of it will be. Will it be three out of six, five out of six, two out of six? It's going to be big. They're going to be big numbers. And having the population of the planet is optimistic. Uh, more more reliable projections, say 5 or 6 out of every 7. Uh, so think about it, 5 or 6 billion people on this planet no longer being here by the end of this century. That transition is going to be, well, it's cataclysmic. It's a, it's apocalyptic <laughs> uh, in biblical terms. So, so it's kind of, 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 you know, there's nothing you can do, so you better learn to dance at the edge of this extinction with those you love the most. But at the same time, you can't just give up because there's a legacy question involved. If it's only one in 10 that survive and they are the ones who are in single digit years today, your kids, my kid, my grandkids, right? If those are the only ones who are going to survive, what do we leave for them to build on? What's the legacy that we can pass through this extinction into their hands? No, to me, those are the that. two big questions. What's my legacy, and how do I dance at the edge of extinction?
0: So, it's interesting. On the apocalyptic end, um, I know for our listeners, this is going to air several weeks from now. So, there, that that's me saying, hey, right now where we're at, we're at, what will we be today? Today is the 22nd of 22nd. March. Um, on the Jewish calendar it's the 26th of Adar and mm-hmm. so one of the things that we do throughout the year is we read all Torah we divide them in two weekly components that we call the Parsha and so for not because we're recording on a Sunday not yesterday Shabbat but the Shabbat prior to that our reading was that the key takeaway was wash your hands wash your feet don't touch your face and you won't die <laughs>
2: Isn't that a coincidental thing, huh?
0: Yesterday's parsha was, there's a couple components. One part was when you have the temple and you have the spices, you can stop a plague. And you stop a plague by being holy to God. And also we were introduced to the law of keeping Shabbat. And in Israel, they have a stay-at-home order. So this is for the modern Israel, contemporary Israeli nation we have today, this will be the first time in its history where it's been as close as possible to most Jews keeping Shabbos. Which is fascinating because we, we have this concept within Judaism that if every Jew kept, all kept the same Shabbat, we would enter the Messianic age, we would have a king who would fix the world, there'd be world peace, and we'd enter into that new era. So it's interesting how a small little bug that's not technically alive, can ravage the world, bring down the greatest powers, stop a world war, annihilate nations, and possibly set us into a new future.
2: So okay. I, I'm not disputing any of that. I mean, I'm I'm already resonating with it very harmoniously, and you know exactly what I mean by that. Yes. <laughs> uh, the I guess the pushing the envelope of that idea, however, is along the lines of, and I'm going to reluctantly go into the Christian apocalyptic end times kind of uh-huh. scenario, would you classify the coronavirus on the same level as a hand of God kind of plague that is a, a literally a warning signal that that's the brink of times that we're entering into? Because from the Christian perspective, as you know, the whole tribulation scenario over the end of times, we don't just jump. Str- we can't hopscotch past seven years of suffering from the Christian perspective, right? Now yeah. I think it's arguable if I if you wanted to go into that eschatology, I think it's arguable that we've already been there, well over two years, but it hadn't gotten great tribulation serious yet. So there's a you know you know this story as well or better than I do. There's a, 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 a tipping point between the Tribulation and the Great Tribulation, right? Would you classify this as those plagues such as, let's say, uh, the Pharaoh faced when Moses' time before uh, the, the Jews left Egypt?
0: This is very fascinating that you bring this up. Um, on one hand, there's the Christian narrative talking about the end times and tribulation and everything. The Jewish narrative does not carry any such concepts. The Messiah is here done deal. We don't have these trumpets and these bowls and all these things that occur that you find within a Christian eschatological viewpoint. But what's fascinating is you bring up the concept of Passover, Pesach, and that that's two weeks from now. And for us, yeah, we, we talk about the plagues and everything. But what's interesting is from a, G, from a Christian concept, how long do you think the t- the plagues took?
2: The plagues? Geez, you're asking the wrong question. (laughs) I don't, I I always shy away from thinking temporally in terms of scripture because it has so many different lenses at looking at time through. But just intuitively, my sense is that it was a single digit number of years at most, and it could have well have been as few as a single digit number of months.
0: Yeah. So each plague, you know, lasting over a month brings us to the concept of it's been a year of plagues, at least from one Jewish opinion. I mean, there's many Jewish opinions on how long each one took, and we debate that during our Passover Seder. We also debate how many plagues there actually were, because we have a recording of these plagues, but how do they apply what happened? The details, for example, the plague of darkness, we see it mentioned darkness, and then it says, and then later it says, and darkness. And so we divide the plague of darkness into two separate plagues. We had the plague of darkness, where only observant Jews could see, and the non-observant Jews couldn't see, the ones who had integrated and assimilated into Egyptian culture, and the Egyptians couldn't see. And then we had a second component, where the plague of darkness became a thick mass. So if you were standing, you were stuck standing. If you were sitting, you were stuck sitting, unless you're an observant Jew. Which allowed us to go into the homes of the Egyptians and s- spot where all their silver and golden treasures were. So that on the way out, when we asked for it, instead of the Egyptians saying, Oh no, we don't have anything, we said, actually, no, it's in this drawer in this room, two down to the left.
2: It's kind of like a like, suspension oh, of time, right? It's kind of like time got suspended and froze everybody except the observant Jews, right?
0: Well, they weren't they weren't frozen in time, like they, they just couldn't move. But the, from an orthodox perspective, this is something that is definitely going to offend listeners. Um, it was the, looking in the Egyptians' homes was not the only reason for this. This second component of the plague allowed Hashem to deal with the problem of the assimilated Jew. Right. The Jews who decided to take on Egyptian culture died during the plague of darkness, so that Hashem would not be blamed. Oh, look, you killed your chosen people, and yep. but they couldn't go. I mean, as, a, as we see, some Egyptians went, and look what happened, the golden calf. Mm-hmm. Imagine if all the assimilated Jews went at the same time. We'd be <laughs> in a very different scenario. Yeah. So, I mean, in regards to the plagues and everything, is this similar to plagues? Yeah, it definitely feels similar to plagues. But we also understand these plagues didn't afflict everybody. It only afflicted Egypt, who was the taskmaster. And so I have a hard time saying COVID-19 is a modern plague in, in that regard, a modern machos, because it's, I mean, it's affecting the, everybody. It is an equalizer. Nobody's immune. Nobody is safe. And our quarantine measures that we're doing and taking into place are not going to stop people from getting sick and dying. They're just trying to slow it down so that hospitals yeah. can ramp up what they have available.
2: Flat the curve is the, is the bumper exactly. sticker. Exactly yeah
0: flatten the curve not
2: not eliminate the curve we can't do that just flatten the curve Right. right. i, I had the it's fascinating to me people are all it, this is the most alarmed that i have seen in mass since the bay of pigs cuba missile crisis in october 63 62 yeah this is the most global alarm that i've experienced since then uh and it's kind of fascinating because, <clears throat> the the when you look at COVID-19, you want to find other historical events, right, and mm-hmm. say, okay, how does this stack up against that? Well, the nearest uh, like event, it, it's somewhat categorically different, but they are play, and, uh, they are a pandemic, <clears throat> and they uh pretty much equalize you know they aren't selective about their victims but it's the spanish flu of 1918 you know the one i'm talking about
0: i've seen a lot of people say
2: this yes well i have not seen you tell me if you've seen anyone bring this point up if you go back and look at it and i didn't have to go very far to find this out the spanish flu of 1918 like every bacterial and viral infection has two phases The first phase comes typically in the spring. Think about it. Spring fever, spring cold, summer cold, right? I get those. I've had those kind of off and on most of my life. So the first wave of these kinds of epidemics and pandemics uh, of flu-like, cold-like infections tends to come in the spring. The second wave of the same bug comes in the fall. For the Spanish flu, something like 15% of the morbidity and mortality occurred in the spring. 80% of it, 85% of it occurred in the fall.
0: Yes. And I, I think what we're going to see with COVID-19 is going to be different than that. And the reason is the Spanish flu, like a lot of cold situations we have, they are more effective in colder weather and warmer weather, they the bug dies out. This non-living thing dies out. That's fascinating. Uh, but it, it can't survive as well in warmer temperatures, which is why we see winter, winter winter are going into the spring, it's still colder outside, we're going into the fall it's starting to get cold. That's why we see it more virulent then and not as much in the summer. Whereas COVID-19, there are countries with warm weather and it's there and it's thriving. We're not going to have a break in the summer like we normally have.
2: I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Plus, I mean, let's be honest about it. The conversation we just had with Guy. <laughs> It's going to be getting warmer, longer <laughs> this fall. Yeah, <laughs> It's not going to go away as quick as it has in the past. Uh, and I will say spring here in Florida is warmer than any spring I remember before. Every time I watch the weather, they compare this day's high and this day's low to the historical record. And probably mm-hmm. more than half the time, we're breaking the records.
0: Yeah. So, so it's, I, I don't see not, us having a typical split
2: uh yeah that's it's it's gonna get it's gonna get a lot worse before it gets better and if there's some point.
0: individuals some folks have said we're at 18 months is how long this is going to take jeez i mean in high. portland we're one weekend
2: <laughs> <laughs> wow florida is about i would say three weeks into it yeah. um how do, how come you say Portland's only a weekend? It seems to me like you've been in it at least a, a
0: weekend for the school closures.
2: Oh, okay, all right. So, but a like, weekend for case people case trying for, to do
0: something. First case report. So here's the problem, and again, I'm talking from a end of March perspective, right? We don't have the testing available.
2: Yeah.
0: we have some tests for those who are serious cases to confirm if they have it or not. But Joe Blow on the street can't go get a test. Yeah. We don't have the resources. So yeah. the number of reported cases is less than 200 right now. And the number of deaths is four. Right. And that number is going to skyrocket by thousands to ten of thousands once you start testing people. I think We're so. I think... not seeing the bigger picture here. Which is my frustration <laughs> with our Oregon governor because she has chosen to not lock down, to not shelter in place. And in coming days, there's going to be a war between the mayors of the metro area and the governor. And I guess the way I view it is to save a life, the Hebrew term is, nefesh, is of the greatest responsibility. We're even told to break Shabbat to save a life. That, that, that's how big of a deal it is. Okay. Wow. So yeah. to save a life, we have this utmost obligation. And if we know by doing a lockdown of two to four weeks can save one life, we need to do it. And the governor is waiting. Well, it's I haven't seen it be bad enough yet. Not realizing that not everybody's symptomatic. And it takes 10 days for these symptoms to appear. By the time she sees it, it's too late.
2: Speaking of that, one of the most, I mean, you go to the World Health Organization, you go to the CDC, you go to your local state, county, city, government, and the federal government and look at public health advisories on how to deal with this. They say you don't need to wear a mask unless you're a healthcare professional or you have an active infection. And I'm going, wait a minute. The last time I read the, the literature, medical literature about this bug, you're contagious for at least three or four days before your symptoms appear. Yeah. So am I going to wear a mask when I go to the grocery store? I think so. Because I'm going to be in there probably less than six feet from a few people who may not have a single symptom, but may well be the typhoid Mary for Osceola County. I'm exaggerating, of course, but you see my point.
0: Yeah. So here in the stores. We have out of several supplies. It's very hard to go shopping for groceries, but we have social distancing. You're not going to be within six feet of somebody while you go to grocery shopping. It's not going to happen. So we're implementing that as a people. We're implementing that. Yeah. the governor said yeah you should be as distant as possible so everybody keeps a six-foot distance in the aisles and everything the costco here had limited 50 people in their store at a time and so yeah. we're seeing these measures being taken uh target had announced that you pull up they'll bring it to the car i just got an email from best buy last night saying no one's allowed in their stores anymore you place a web order and you can go park in the parking lot you know they're there They'll come and they'll put it in your trunk for you. And at that time, if there's anything else you want, you tell them and they'll go shopping for you. So that's
2: that's the kinds of measures I think that make a lot of sense. And it's fascinating, though, and of course the Trump menagerie when they do press announces and press releases and all that kind of thing. And I wonder if your state governor did the same thing. I know Florida's did. When they go before the cameras for the photo op to do a press release about this stuff and about, you know, self-distancing and all that. Are they six feet apart? No, 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 no. and what do they do when they get there and when they leave? They shake, shake hands and they pat each other, right? And I'm going, you're not really walking the talk. <laughs> yeah, sounds
0: about right. So, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, in the end, we'll see what happens, but I think it's an interesting. interesting, com- uh, it's just an interesting concept that COVID nineteen may be making people deal with climate change when they normally wouldn't have, because of how they're responding to COVID
2: nineteen. Uh, that's that's a two and two together. That I'm sure not everyone will do that calculation. I'd be surprised if that if if the, if COVID nineteen motivated fifteen to twenty percent of the people who are on the fence about climate change, much less deniers. Yeah. I would think I would consider that a huge step forward to for the climate crisis movements.
0: Well, I'm not saying necessarily that it's causing kind of people to be environmentalists or to respond in that way. What oh, no. I'm saying is that people aren't going to movie theaters. People aren't going to malls. People aren't going on massive road trips. As a yeah. result of these stay-at-home orders, you're consuming less and causing less of a pollution in the, in the end because you're not doing the typical American consumerism.
2: Right. What, think of it this way, though. Let's, if you really want to kind of analogize it or set up a, a comparison between this and the climate crisis, suppose that around, well, let's say, September last year. The press had just kind of quietly started letting little scientific releases out that showed up once or twice a week, four or five pages in to the science and technology section of the paper saying, scientists are predicting that sometime in the late mid to late spring next year of 2020, we're going to have a seasonal flu. Send questions, comments, and suggestions
0: to semiobytes at gmail.com. Semiobytes is a podcast co-hosted by Yidbrook and Semiocity that answer Semitic questions via semiotic analysis by addressing misunderstandings to build a bridge of shalom between Judaism and Christianity. Semiobytes is a component of the Track 2 dissertation process at Portland Seminary for Jonathan Esterman and Terry Rankin.